Chapter 1, Part 4 of The Legends of the Jews, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Legends of the Jews, Volume 1, by Rabbi Lewis Ginsburg. The Sixth Day. As the fish were formed out of water, and the birds out of boggy earth well mixed with water, so the mammals were formed of solid earth, and as Leviathan is the most notable representative of the fish kind, and Ziz of the bird kind, so Behemoth is the most notable representative of the mammal kind. Behemoth matches Leviathan in strength, and he had to be prevented, like Leviathan, from multiplying and increasing, else the world could not have continued to exist. After God had created him, male and female, he had once deprived him of the desire to propagate his kind. He is so monstrous that he requires the produce of a thousand mountains for his daily food. All the water that flows through the bed of the Jordan in a year suffices him for exactly one gulp. It therefore was necessary to give him one stream entirely for his own use, a stream flowing forth from paradise called Yubal. The Himot, too, is destined to be served to the pious as an appetizing dainty, but before they enjoy his flesh, they will be permitted to view the mortal combat between Leviathan and Behemoth, as a reward for having denied themselves the pleasures of the circus and its gladiatorial contests. Leviathan, Ziz, and Behemoth are not the only monsters. There are many others, and marvelous ones, like the Reem, a giant animal of which only one couple, male and female, is in existence. Had there been more, the world could hardly have maintained itself against them. The act of copulation occurs but once in seventy years between them, for God has so ordered it that the male and female reem are at the opposite ends of the earth, the one in the east, the other in the west. The act of copulation results in the death of the male. He is bitten by the female and dies of the bite. The female becomes pregnant and remains in this state for no less than twelve years. At the end of this long period, she gives birth to twins, a male and a female. The year preceding her delivery, she is not able to move. She would die of hunger, were it not that her own spittle flowing copiously from her mouth waters and fructifies the earth near her, and causes it to bring forth enough for her maintenance. For a whole year, the animal can but roll from side to side until her belly finally bursts, and the twins issue forth. Their appearance is thus the signal for the death of the mother Reem. She makes room for the new generation, which in turn is destined to suffer the same fate as the generation that went before. Immediately after birth, the one goes eastward and the other westward, to meet only after the lapse of seventy years, propagate themselves, and perish. A traveler who once saw a Reem, one day old, described its height to be four parasangs, and the length of its head one parasang and a half. Its horns measure one hundred ells, and their height is a great deal more. One of the most remarkable creatures is the man of the mountain, Adnesade, or, briefly, Adam. His form is exactly that of a human being, but he is fastened to the ground by means of a navel string upon which his life depends. The cord once snapped, he dies. This animal keeps himself alive with what is produced by the soil around him as far as his tether permits him to crawl. No creature may venture to approach within the radius of his cord, 
for he seizes and demolishes whatever comes in his reach. To kill him, one may not go near to him. The navel string must be severed from a distance by means of a dart. Then he dies amid groans and moans. Once upon a time, a traveler happened in the region where this animal is found. He overheard his host consult his wife as to what to do to honor their guest and resolve to serve our man, as he said. Thinking he had fallen among cannibals, the stranger ran as fast as his feet could carry him from his entertainer, who sought vainly to restrain him. Afterward, he found out that there had been no intention of regaling him with human flesh, but only with the flesh of the strange animal called man, as the man of the mountain is fixed to the ground by his navel string, so the barnacle goose is grown to a tree by its bill. It is hard to say whether it is an animal and must be slaughtered to be fit for food, or whether it is a plant, and no ritual ceremony is necessary before eating it. Among the birds, the phoenix is the most wonderful. When Eve gave all the animals some of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, the phoenix was the only bird that refused to eat thereof, and he was rewarded with eternal life. When he has lived a thousand years, his body shrinks and the feathers drop from it, until he is as small as an egg. This is the nucleus of the new bird. The phoenix is also called the guardian of the terrestrial sphere. He runs with the sun on his circuit, and he spreads out his wings and catches up the fiery rays of the sun. If he were not to intercept them, neither man nor any other animate being would keep alive. On his right wing, the following words are inscribed in huge letters, about four thousand stadia high. Neither the earth produces me, nor the heavens, but only the wings of fire. His food consists of the manna of heaven and the dew of the earth. His excrement, Enoch, who saw the phoenix birds when he was translated, describes them as flying creatures, wonderful and strange in appearance, with the feet and tails of lions and the heads of crocodiles. Their appearance is of a purple color like the rainbow, their size nine hundred measures. Their wings are like those of angels, each having twelve, and they attend the chariot of the sun and go with him, bringing heat and dew as they are ordered by God. In the morning, when the sun starts on his daily course, the phoenixes and the chalkidri sing, and every bird flaps its wings, rejoicing the giver of light, and they sing a song at the command of the Lord. Among reptiles, the salamander and the shamir are their most marvelous. The salamander originates from a fire of myrtle wood, which has been kept burning for seven years steadily by means of magic arts. Not bigger than a mouse, it is yet invested with peculiar properties. One who smears himself with its blood is invulnerable, and the web woven by it is a talisman against fire. The people who lived at the deluge boasted that, were a fire flood to come, they would protect themselves with the blood of the salamander. King Hezekiah owes his life to the salamander. His wicked father, King Ahaz, had delivered him to the fires of Moloch, and he would have been burnt had his mother not painted him with the blood of the salamander, so that the fire could do him no harm. The Shamir was made at twilight on the sixth day of creation, together with other extraordinary things. It is about as large as a barley corn, and it possesses the remarkable property of cutting the hardest of diamonds. For this reason, it was used for the stones in the breastplate worn by the high priest. First, 
the names of the twelve tribes were traced with ink on the stones to be set into the breastplate, then the shamir was passed over the lines, and thus they were graven. The wonderful circumstance was that the friction wore no particles from the stones. The shamir was also used for hewing into shape the stones from which the temple was built, because the law prohibited iron tools to be used for the work in the temple. The shamir may not be put in an iron vessel for safekeeping, nor in any metal vessel. It would burst such a receptacle asunder. It is kept wrapped in a woolen cloth, and this in turn is placed in a lead basket filled with barley bran. The shamir was guarded in paradise until Solomon needed it. He sent the eagle thither to fetch the worm. With the destruction of the temple, the shamir vanished. A similar fate overtook the takash, which had been created only that its skin might be used for the tabernacle. Once the tabernacle was completed, the takash disappeared. It had a horn on its forehead, was gaily colored like the turkey cock, and belonged to the class of clean animals. Among the fishes there are also wonderful creatures, the sea goats and the dolphins, not to mention leviathan. A seafaring man once saw a sea goat on whose horns the words were inscribed, I am a little sea animal, yet I traversed three hundred parasangs to offer myself as food to the leviathan. The dolphins are half man and half fish. They even have sexual intercourse with human beings. Therefore they are also called sons of the sea, for in a sense they represent the humankind in the waters. Though every species in the animal world was created during the last two days of the six of creation, yet many characteristics of certain animals appeared later. Cats and mice, foes now, were friends originally. Their later enmity had a distinct cause. On one occasion the mouse appeared before God and spoke, I and the cat are partners, but now we have nothing to eat. The Lord answered, Thou art intriguing against thy companion, only that thou mayest devour her. As a punishment, she shall devour thee. Thereupon the mouse, O Lord of the world, wherein have I done wrong? God replied, O thou unclean reptile, thou shouldst have been warned by the example of the moon, who lost a part of her light, because she spake ill of the sun, and what she lost was given to her opponent. The evil intentions thou didst harbor against thy companion shall be punished in the same way. Instead of thy devouring her, she shall devour thee. The Mouse O Lord of the world, shall my whole kind be destroyed? God I will take care that a remnant of thee is spared. In her rage the Mouse bit the cat, and the cat in turn threw herself upon the Mouse, and hacked into her with her teeth until she lay dead. Since that moment, the mouse stands in such awe of the cat that she does not even attempt to defend herself against her enemy's attacks, and always keeps herself in hiding. Similarly, dogs and cats maintained a friendly relation to each other, and only later on became enemies. A dog and a cat were partners, and they shared with each other whatever they had. It once happened that neither could find anything to eat for three days. Thereupon the dog proposed that they dissolve their partnership. The cat should go to Adam, in whose house there would surely be enough for her to eat, while the dog should seek his fortune elsewhere. Before they separated, they took an oath never to go to the same master. The cat took up her abode with Adam, and she found sufficient mice in his house to satisfy her appetite. 
Seeing how useful she was in driving away and extirpating mice, Adam treated her most kindly. The dog, on the other hand, saw bad times. The first night after their separation he spent in the cave of the wolf, who had granted him a nice lodging. At night the dog caught the sound of steps, and he reported it to his host, who bade him repulse the intruders. They were wild animals. Little lacked, and the dog would have lost his life. Dismayed, the dog fled from the house of the wolf and took refuge with the monkey. But he would not grant him even a single night's lodging, and the fugitive was forced to appeal to the hospitality of the sheep. Again, the dog heard steps in the middle of the night. Obeying the bidding of his host, he arose to chase away the marauders, who turned out to be wolves. The barking of the dog apprised the wolves of the presence of sheep, so that the dog innocently caused the sheep's death. Now he had lost his last friend. Night after night he begged for shelter, without ever finding a home. Finally, he decided to repair to the house of Adam, who also granted him refuge for one night. When wild animals approached the house under cover of darkness, the dog began to bark. Adam awoke, and with his bow and arrow he drove them away. Recognizing the dog's usefulness, he bade him remain with him always. But as soon as the cat espied the dog in Adam's house, she began to quarrel with him, and reproach him with having broken his oath to her. Adam did his best to pacify the cat. He told her he had invited the dog himself to make his home there, and he assured her that she would in no wise be the loser by the dog's presence. He wanted both to stay with him. But it was impossible to appease the cat. The dog promised her not to touch anything intended for her. She insisted that she could not live in one and the same house with a thief like the dog. Bickerings between the dog and the cat became the order of the day. Finally the dog could stand it no longer, and he left Adam's house, and betook himself to Seth's. By Seth he was welcomed kindly, and from Seth's house he continued to make efforts at reconciliation with the cat. In vain. Yes, the enmity between the first dog and the first cat was transmitted to all their descendants until this very day. Even the physical peculiarities of certain animals were not original features with them, but owed their existence to something that had occurred subsequent to the days of creation. The mouse at first had quite a different mouth from its present mouth. In Noah's Ark, in which all animals, to ensure the preservation of every kind, lived together peaceably, the pair of mice were once sitting next to the cat. Suddenly the latter remembered that her father was in the habit of devouring mice, and thinking there was no harm in following his example, she jumped at the mouse, who vainly looked for a hole into which to slip out of sight. Then a miracle happened. A hole appeared where none had been before, and the mouse sought refuge in it. The cat pursued the mouse, and though she could not follow her into the hole, she could insert her paw and try to pull the mouse out of her covert. Quickly the mouse opened her mouth in the hope that the paw would go into it and the cat would be prevented from fastening her claws in her flesh. But as the cavity of the mouth was not big enough, the cat succeeded in clawing the cheeks of the mouse. Not that this helped her much, it merely widened the mouth of the mouse, and her prey, after all, escaped the cat. After her happy escape, the mouse betook herself to Noah and said to him, O pious man, be good enough to sew up my cheek where my enemy, the cat, has torn a rent in it. Noah bade her fetch a hair out of the tail of the swine, and with this he repaired the damage. Thence 
the little seam-like line next to the mouth of every mouse to this very day. The raven is another animal that changed its appearance during its sojourn in the ark. When Noah desired to send him forth to find out about the state of the waters, he hid under the wings of the eagle. Noah found him, however, and said to him, Go and see whether the waters have diminished. The raven pleaded, Hast thou none other among all the birds to send on this errand? Noah, My power extends no further than over thee and the dove. But the raven was not satisfied. He said to Noah with great insolence, Thou sendest me forth, only that I may meet my death, and thou wishest my death, that my wife may be at thy service. Thereupon Noah cursed the raven thus, May thy mouth, which has spoken evil against me, be accursed, and thy intercourse with thy wife be only through it. All the animals in the ark said Amen. And this is the reason why a mass of spittle runs from the mouth of the male raven into the mouth of the female during the act of copulation, and only thus is the female impregnated. Altogether, the raven is an unattractive animal. He is unkind toward his own young so long as their bodies are not covered with black feathers, though as a rule, ravens love one another. God therefore takes the young ravens under his special protection. From their own excrement, maggots come forth which serve as their food during the three days that elapse after their birth, until their white feathers turn black, and their parents recognize them as their offspring and care for them. The raven has himself to blame also for the awkward hop in his gait. He observed the graceful step of the dove, and envious of her, tried to emulate it. The outcome was that he almost broke his bones without in the least succeeding in making himself resemble the dove, not to mention that he brought the scorn of the other animals down upon himself. His failure excited their ridicule. Then he decided to return to his own original gait, but in the interval he had unlearnt it, and he could walk neither the one way nor the other properly. His step had become a hop betwixt and between. Thus we see how true it is, that he who is dissatisfied with his small portion loses the little he has in striving for more and better things. The steer is also one of the animals that have suffered a change in the course of time. Originally, his face was entirely overgrown with hair, but now there is none on his nose, and that is because Joshua kissed him on the nose during the siege of Jericho. Joshua was an exceedingly heavy man. Horses, donkeys, and mules, none could bear him, and they all broke down under his weight. What they could not do, the steer accomplished. On his back, Joshua rode to the siege of Jericho, and in gratitude he bestowed a kiss upon his nose. The serpent, too, is other than it was at first. Before the fall of man, it was the cleverest of all animals created, and in form it resembled man closely. It stood upright, and was of extraordinary size. Afterward, it lost the mental advantages it had possessed as compared with other animals, and degenerated physically too. It was deprived of its feet, so that it could not pursue other animals and kill them. The mole and the frog had to be made harmless in similar ways, the former has no eyes, else it would be irresistible, and the frog has no teeth, else no animal in the water were sure of its life. While the cunning of the serpent wrought its own undoing, the cunning of the fox stood him in good stead in many an embarrassing situation. After Adam had committed the sin of disobedience, God delivered the whole of the animal world into the power of the angel of death, 
and he ordered him to cast one pair of each kind into the water. He and Leviathan together thus have dominion over all that has life. When the angel of death was in the act of executing the divine command upon the fox, he began to weep bitterly. The angel of death asked him the reason of his tears, and the fox replied that he was mourning the sad fate of his friend. At the same time, he pointed to the figure of a fox in the sea, which was nothing but his own reflection. The angel of death, persuaded that a representative of the fox family had been cast into the water, let him go free. The fox told his trick to the cat, and she in turn played it on the angel of death. So it happened that neither cats nor foxes are represented in the water, while all the other animals are. When Leviathan passed the animals in review, and missing the fox, was informed of the sly way in which he had eluded his authority, he dispatched great and powerful fish on the errand of enticing the truant into the water. The fox, walking along the shore, espied the large number of fish, and he exclaimed, How happy he who may always satisfy his hunger with the flesh of such as these! The fish told him, If he would but follow them, his appetite could easily be appeased. At the same time, they informed him that a great honor awaited him. Leviathan, they said, was at death's door, and he had commissioned them to install the fox as his successor. They were ready to carry him on their backs, so that he had no need to fear the water, and thus they would convey him to the throne, which stood upon a huge rock. The fox yielded to these persuasions and descended into the water. Presently, an uncomfortable feeling took possession of him. He began to suspect that the tables were turned. He was being made game of instead of making game of others as usual. He urged the fish to tell him the truth, and they admitted that they had been sent out to secure his person for Leviathan, who wanted his heart, that he might become as knowing as the fox, whose wisdom he had heard many extol. The fox said reproachfully, Why did you not tell me the truth at once? Then I could have brought my heart along with me for King Leviathan who would have showered honors upon me. As it is, you will surely suffer punishment for bringing me without my heart. The foxes, you see, he continued, do not carry their hearts around with them. They keep them in a safe place, and when they have need of them, they fetch them thence. The fish quickly swam ashore and landed the fox so that he might go for his heart. No sooner did he feel dry land under his feet than he began to jump and shout, and when they urged him to go in search of his heart and follow them, he said, O oh, ye fools, could I have followed you into the water if I had not had my heart with me? Or exists there a creature able to go abroad without his heart? The fish replied, Come, come, thou art fooling us. Whereupon the fox, O oh, ye fools, if I could play a trick on the angel of death, how much easier was it to make game of you? So they had to return, their errand undone, and Leviathan could not but confirm the taunting judgment of the fox. In very truth, the fox is wise of heart, and ye are fools. End of chapter 1, part 4